Let me invite you now to take your Bibles and look to the book of Hosea. And today we are in chapter 5. Now some of you may not know where Hosea is in the Bible. And as a very helpful teacher I once had told me, there is a table of contents in the front that will tell you the exact page that Hosea is on. I found that to be extremely helpful the first time through the Minor Prophets, and uh, I, I do not say that in any way to impugn your biblical knowledge, just to help. That said, hear now the word of the living God as we read the fifth chapter of the book of Hosea. Hear this, O priest, pay attention, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house of the king, for the judgment is for you, for you have been a snare at Mizpah, and a net spread upon Tabor, and the revolters have gone deep into slaughter, but I will discipline all of them. I know Ephraim. And Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you have played the whore. Israel is defiled. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. For the spirit of whoredom is within them, and they know not the Lord. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. Israel and Ephraim shall stumble in his guilt. Judah also shall stumble with them. With their flocks and herds they shall go to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. He has withdrawn from them. They have dealt faithlessly with the Lord, for they have borne alien children. Now the new moon shall devour them with their fields. Blow the horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah. Sound the alarm at Beth-Avon. We follow you, O Benjamin. Ephraim shall become a desolation in the day of punishment among the tribes of Israel. I make known what is sure. The princes of Judah have become like those who moved the landmark. Upon them I will pour out my wrath like water. Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment, because he was determined to go after filth. But I am like a moth to Ephraim, and like dry rot to the house of Judah. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to the great king. But he is not able to cure you or heal your wound. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim, and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off, and no one shall rescue. I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face, and in their distress earnestly seek me. This is God's word. Let us pray. Our Father, as we read this chapter together, and just the initial reading causes all kinds of reaction in us as we read of both the goodness and the severity of the Lord, and here more the severity. 
And we pray today that you would give us ears to hear and a heart that is responsive to what you say to us through your word. And we pray that this word today that we hear would be transforming as it works your will in us. And we pray that fruit would redound to the glory of Christ because we have heard your word today. And we pray in his name. Amen. Years ago, I was, uh, well, not that many years ago. As a matter of fact, probably two months ago. <laughs> years ago just sounded more dramatic. A couple of months ago, I was sharing the gospel with a man and just basically going through fundamentals of the gospel. And I'll never forget the look on his face when I used the word saved. It, it was a word to him that just didn't really compute. And so he said, what do you mean saved? What do you mean I need to be saved? I said, well, you need to be saved from your sins because if you're not saved from your sins, you will answer for them. He said, I don't need to be saved from my sins. He said, I kind of like my sins. I don't care anything about whether you think I'm a sinner or anybody else thinks I'm a sinner. Now, this guy's obviously hard. And at the time, you know, when you're sharing the gospel with people, you can never think of the things to say when you're there. But driving home after that moment, I thought to myself, no, sir, what you need to be saved from is God. That's who you need to be saved from. You need to be saved from God. Because our God is a consuming fire. Our God is a judge. And as a judge, he has authority. And as a judge, you know, you, you talk to people today and many uh, would rather hear you speak of God as a father or a friend or a helper or one who loves us despite all of our weaknesses and all of our folly and all of our sin. And when you do, faces light up and people get happy with that. And you're on their wavelength at once. But when you speak to people of God as judge, and they frown and shake their heads, their minds recoil from such an idea, and they find it repugnant and repellent and unworthy. And they begin to, as they say in Louisiana, crawfish away from you. People don't like the fact that God is a judge. They don't like the reality that they will have to answer and give an account for every word, every thought, every deed before God. And so in this text, we run into God the judge. We notice that in chapter 4 already, the indictment has been presented to Israel. And it is a powerful indictment. An indictment that proves them beyond any shadow of a doubt guilty in the worst degree. And so now in chapter 5, the author moves to the verdict of the indictment and trial that was held in chapter 4. And the verdict is not a pleasant one. And so as we read the opening three verses, we see that a lawsuit that God was bringing against his people in chapter 4, pretty much focused on the priest and their failure to lead people in the knowledge of God. But chapter 5, as chapter 4 did, begins with a call to hear what God is saying. 
In chapter 4, God opened the court proceedings. Now he is declaring the verdict. Hear this, O priest. Pay attention, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house of the king, for the judgment is for you. And then he continues through verse 3. These verses literally repeat the accusations made in chapter 4. The priest and the politicians have been a snare to the people, leading them into rebellion against their God. Their policies have led to slaughter and corruption. And above all, they have, led, uh, they have uh, turned to whoredom or to idolatry. And as you think about these first three verses, let me call your attention to a, a couple of things. He expands his audience here. First, he speaks of the priests. Then he speaks of the house of Israel, which would have to do with all the people of Israel, the northern kingdom in particular here. And then he continues on to the house of the king. And he says, for the judgment is for you. Why? Why is God proclaiming judgment upon the leadership in Israel? We have represented here the spiritual leadership of Israel. We have represented here the economic and governmental aspects of Israel's leadership. And God says the problem, the problem in Israel today, the reason for judgment is the leadership's fault. The onus of responsibility for the way the people are committing whoredom, running after Baal, running after false gods, indulging in false worship, going to the cult of prostitution in the temple shrines of the false god. The reason why people are doing that is because the leadership has failed. It's a leadership problem. The leadership has failed. What have they failed to do? They have failed to teach people the knowledge of God. They have failed to do what God called them to do. Not only to teach them, but to lead them. The king's responsibility was to lead the people in ways in which were, that were consistent with the knowledge of God. Knowing God. And knowing God here is much more than just knowing information about him. Let me take a moment to talk about this a little bit more because I think it will be helpful for you if I do. Um, Abraham Heschel has written a book on the prophets in the Old Testament. And in particular, in his section on Hosea, he speaks of what it means to know God. And he talks about the Hebrew here, and he says the verb yada does not always mean to simply know or even to be acquainted with. In most Semitic languages, it signifies sexual union as well as mental and spiritual activity. In Hebrew, yada means more than just a possession of abstract concepts or what we might call head knowledge. Knowledge compasses inner appropriation, feeling, a reception into the soul. It involves both an intellectual and emotional dimension and act. An, ana an analysis of the use of the verb in biblical Hebrew leads to the conclusion that it is often, though not always, denoting an act involving concern, inner engagement, dedication, or attachment to a person. And so while the cult leaders, the priest, and while the government leader, the king, 
And while all the people of Israel have departed from the Lord, have fallen into gross idolatry, the fault lies upon the priest and upon the leadership for not teaching people the knowledge of God. Not only information about who God is, not only history about what he's done, but rather what it means to live in covenant with our God. That our relationship with God is, is as much like a marriage as it is a forensic or legal thing. You know, I've talked to you quite a bit about what a covenant is and what it means to live in covenant. But to know the Lord is to live in the light of that relationship with him in every aspect of your being. You should be thinking of him always. You should be having feelings in relationship with him always. It isn't just a cold mental exercise. It isn't objective truth splashed in some notebook that you went to a seminar for. It is intimate heart knowledge and engagement and attachment to him. And I'll tell you something. All the theological knowledge in the world ain't worth 50 cents. If it doesn't move that 18 inches from the head to the heart. These people were disobeying God. They lived all around what God wanted, but never in the middle, never in the center. God and their relationship with his people were on the periphery of their experience. God was orbiting around them rather than them orbiting around God, so to speak. And so God brings his charges and he lays the onus of responsibility upon those who were the priest. And so as we continue to read, he says, you've been a snare at Mizpah. You've been a net spread. All of these images in, in the next uh, two verses uh, have to do with hunting. He uses a hunting metaphor. And he said, because you haven't taught people the knowledge of God, and he mentions two places, and more than likely three places, because the place of slaughter was called Shittim. And so you have um, Mizpah, you have Tabor, and you have Shittim. And it basically geographically represents in every direction the whole of Israel. But the idea of a net, the idea of a snare, the idea of a slaughter represents the leadership and their responsibility in the people going to those sacred places and participating in idolatry. And so God's judgment comes upon his people for that. That they... Uh, have disregarded him and actually the uh, verse 3 the revolters have gone deep into slaughter there are many Hebrew scholars here who see this as a reference to child sacrifice you are sacrificing your children your idolatry has led you to the point to rather than teaching your children the knowledge of God, you are sacrificing your children to whatever idol has your heart preoccupied. Which leads me for a moment to talk about the concept of idolatry. Because it's easy to look at this and go, well, I don't do any of this. And the answer to that is, oh, yes, you do. And yes, I do. Because when he calls them uh, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself here, but I can't help it. Um, 
There is an air of hope, though. Let me say this before I move on to verse 3. He says, uh, but I will discipline all of them. In other words, anywhere the word discipline is used, it means there's still a ray of hope. There's still the chance that God may, through the process of bringing judgment upon people, there's always in judgment the underbelly, I like to call it, of mercy. For example, the act of the flood in Genesis chapter 6 was an example of God's great judgment upon the earth. And it was a horrible, um, just unspeakable moment of destruction uh, of creation. Only eight people survived. But the great gift of mercy is if God had not brought that judgment, there would have been no way for his seed to survive, the seed of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent that would save us all. So in that act of judgment, there's great mercy. And so there is the hope that maybe some, a remnant, will repent and return to the Lord. But more on that in a moment. But notice he says, I know Ephraim, and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, Ephraim, you have played the whore, and Israel is defiled. These verses, again, repeat accusations that have already been shared. And so God presents the evidence he says that he knows all about Ephraim. That's another name for Israel. Israel is not hidden from me. We cannot hide what we do from God. He sees even our inner thoughts and motives and desires. God doesn't have to hire uh, somebody to investigate you. He knows us all through and through. And he knows that one of the greatest problems in all of mankind and in all of his problems, is the problem of idolatry. What is idolatry, and why is it so odious to the Father? An idol is something within creation that is inflated to function as a substitute in my heart for God. All sorts of things are potential idols. An idol can be a physical object, a property, a person, an activity, a role, an institution, a hope, an image, an idea, a pleasure, a hero. If this is so, how do we determine when something is to me or you an idol? As soon as our loyalty to anything leads us to disobey God, we are in danger of making it an idol. And that is certainly what the children of Israel have done here. Work, let's say, is a commandment of God, but it can become an idol if it is pursued so exclusively that responsibilities to one's family are ignored. Family, an institution of God himself, can become an idol if one is so preoccupied with their own family that no one outside of one's own family is cared for. Being well-liked is a perfectly legitimate hope, but it becomes an idol if the attachment to it means no one ever risks disapproval. Idols are inflated, suggesting that the idol will fulfill the promises for the good life. Idols come in pairs, a nearby idol that may be a ri rising standard of living, but a faraway idol is a semi-conscious belief that material success will wipe away all my tears. The most basic question which God poses to each human heart is this. Has something or someone besides Jesus Christ taken title to your hearts 
functional trust, preoccupation, loyalty, service, fear, and delight. Some of the questions bring to the surface people's idol systems. To who or what do you look for for life-sustaining stability, security, and acceptance? What do you really want out of life? What would really, really make you happy? What would make you an acceptable person? Where do you look for power and success? These questions tease out what we're really looking at, whether we're really serving God or we're serving idols or whether we look for salvation from Christ or from false saviors. And this bears on the immediate motivation of my behavior, my thoughts, my feelings. In the biblical conceptualization, the motivation question is the lordship question. Who or what rules my behavior? The Lord or an idol? And so the idol becomes for us that which controls us. It overpowers us. And it creates all kinds of... He, he even speaks here in the text, and I'm, uh, uh, just follow along with me. He speaks of a spirit of whoredom. What is that? I'll tell you what it is. It's demonic activity. That is exactly what it is. It certainly isn't the Holy Spirit, is it? When he speaks of a spirit of whoredom, what he's saying is that as we replace God with these substitutes and we begin to believe the gospel they preach us more than the gospel God preaches us and we enter into a relationship, a covenant relationship with these idols thinking they're going to give us the good life, they're going to satisfy my every need, they're going to enrich me in every way. When I do that, I am falling into a delusion I am believing a lie and who is the father of lies Satan what is the spirit of whoredom it is a spirit of idolatry and one of the ways demons and their power affect us is seducing us away from the simplicity that is in Jesus Christ into idol substitutes how do you know you have an idol if somebody blocks you from attaining what that idol offers you, you get angry. And I mean angry beyond anger, I mean rage. If for some reason you're not able to accomplish what you hoped you would get out of an idol, then you fall into a trap of bitterness that gnaws away like the cancer of your soul. There are all kinds of ways, all kinds of alarm systems that we've taken something good in creation and exalted it to the level of God. And what these Israelites have done, what Ephraim has done, is he has not gotten rid of Yahweh altogether. He's not said, Yahweh, I don't believe in you. What Ephraim has done has added to Yahweh Baal. Because what did Baal promise? Fertility. Bumper crops, everything you could ever want, chicken in every pot, Cadillac in every driveway. I could go further, but I won't. The good life. That's what Baal promised. And so here's what they would do. When, when, when they were worshiping, they would go to these places where Baal was worshipped and they would incorporate aspects of Baal worship into Yahweh worship and, and notice what God says as he looks at them he says uh, I know Ephraim Israel's not hidden from me for now Ephraim you played the whore 
Israel is defiled. Their deeds do not permit them to return to the Lord. For the spirit of whoredom is within them, and they know not the Lord. That spirit of whoredom, demonic activity, demonic oppression, believing the lies, seduced by the lies, living in delusion, hardens the heart and makes repentance repugnant. And these people didn't even believe they needed to repent. Us repent? Why? And so clearly, but notice as he continues in verse 5, the pride of Israel testifies to his face. What does that phrase, pride of Israel, mean? The pride of Israel is a self-assertive, self-sufficient spirit by which they threw off all allegiance to God and reliance upon Him for their well-being. This was a distorted response to their population growth, economic prosperity, military prowess, and religious blindness. And he says, your pride will testify, imparts a legal error to what's being said, evidence to substantiate the allegations made is being accumulated and it is principally found in the conduct and bearing of the accused. The meaning testifies seems to be uh, that uh, a spirit of arrogance with which they have rebelled against Yahweh is held on record against them. Against him means literally in my face shows no further witnesses need to be called to substantiate such evident misconduct. And so the Israel and Ephraim shall stumble in their guilt. Judah also shall stumble with them. And then notice verse 6. With their flocks and herds they shall go to seek the Lord. What does this mean? They haven't stopped worshiping. They haven't stopped offering sacrifices. They haven't stopped gathering on the Sabbath day. They haven't stopped any of their religious cultic activity. And God says, bring it on, but I'm not there. I don't come to church when you come to church. I don't care about what you do or how you try to manipulate me or manage me or get in my favor while you're uh, betraying me and wounding my heart and continually being unfaithful to me. You have dealt faithlessly with the Lord. And notice he says, for they have born alien children. So God says, you come to worship, you offer your sacrifices, you say you seek me, but you're not going to find me. And I'm going to withdraw myself from you. And even your children have become foreign to me, alien to me, because of your lifestyle of idolatry, of constant idolatry. And he says, now the new moon shall devour them with the fields. The new moon was a festival in which they celebrated the fertility of uh, God's provision for his people and now God says it becomes a sign of judgment. Their sacrifices are not a sign of the people's faith in God's provision. They're merely going through the motions. They're committing what we call formalism. It is a hypocritical attempt to through religious performance deal with their shame. And it is a reminder to us of the dangers of mere formality in our religious performances before God. But in verse 8, something new comes to the scene. 
So far in Hosea, we have moved from the maternity ward to the wilderness to the slave market to the law court, and now we move to the battlefield. And it opens with a court summons. Now a battle cry, blow the horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah, sound the alarm at Beth-Avon. And so, since there is no knowledge of God in the land, and the verdict has been given, God withdraws himself from them, and he, I cannot convey to you how terrible those words are for God's people. Because God says, I have withdrawn myself from you in judgment. God is their only joy, their only hope, their only protection, their only security, their only provider, their only rescue, their only pride, and now he is gone. And so the prophet says, sound the trumpet, sound the alarm, blow the horn. Gibeah and Ramah are border towns. And you might expect them to be on the northern border of Israel, the directions from which the Assyrians would come. In fact, they're on the southern border of Israel. And it's a sign that the Assyrians will penetrate deep into Israel and out the other side, and the invading army will spread throughout the land. In verse 6, God in his judgment withdraws his protection, and so Israel is now left defenseless and vulnerable. At this point in their history, God's people are divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel and Ephraim and the southern kingdom Judah. And most of Hosea's ministry has been to the northern kingdom, but now he begins to address the southern kingdom as well. Both kingdoms are now threatened by a Syrian invasion. And so it proved Israel was completely destroyed and Judah became a vassal state of Assyria. Notice he says the princes of Judah, verse 10, have become like those who moved the landmark and upon them I will pour out my wrath like water. The accusation is that Judah is moving boundary stones. What are boundary stones? That is, they are annexing territory that was originally signed to another tribe. And so it's like they're... they're uh, uh, these towns are near the borders of Judah, and they cannot assume that it would be safe with Israel, and so they acted as a buffer between them and the Assyrian threat, but now they're beginning to move the stones, so to speak, to profit off of the, their opportunist of the trouble of the northern kingdom. And so they're removing boundary stones, which God says don't remove. And then God begins to say, I have withdrawn from you, and then verses 8 through 11 is a warning the Assyrians are coming, but something much worse is going to happen. Verses 12 through 14 are a warning that God himself is coming. The background to verse 13 may well live in the story of King Menachem, but I, I'm not going to go through all of that, the Syro-Ephraimite war, that would take too long. But notice the images God uses. God says in these next verses, he will be like a flood of water, chapter 5, verse 10. A devouring moth, chapter 5, verse 12. Corrosive rot, ch chapter 5, verse 12. Festering wound, verse 13. A vicious lion, a vicious lion. 
God's righteous response here is overwhelming. A few years later, it is true, Assyria would return and destroy Israel. But there's something worse than an Assyrian army coming against you, and that is to have God come against you. A war against the Assyrians was a frightening prospect, especially if you no longer had God's protection. But a war against God himself is utterly terrifying. And that is what the Bible is teaching here. Notice God says, he's not only passively withdrawing from his people and turning them over to their sins, but he says, I am actively bringing judgment. I, even I, will tear and go away. And I will carry off. That's the idea of a lion attacking his prey, tearing the flesh of its prey, and taking his prey back to the lion's den. God says, I'm doing that. First, Israel will be torn by God and not somebody else. I will tear, God says. I myself will do this, not someone else. Even if in reality God uses someone else as an instrument of judgment, God is not just merely abandoning them to others. He himself is coming after them. The holy warrior has become the holy warrior against his own people, which he told us in Deuteronomy he would do if people broke the covenant through infidelity and false worship and idolatry. And so judgment day is coming. Second, Israel will be torn by God even though he is her husband. Even I will tear, says God. Even though I am your husband, I will do this because of your covenant unfaithfulness. The New Testament describes us often as enemies of God. We are at war with God, and in our battle against God, there is only ever going to be one winner. God's judgment is both passive and proactive. In this life, it is also often passive. God gives people up or hands them over to wickedness. Paul says this in Romans 1, 24, 26, 28. God gives us over to our sin by lifting his hand of restraint upon us. People live with the consequences of their sin. Communities live with the consequences of sin. And when there is no faithfulness, no love, no knowledge of God in the land, there is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, adultery, breaking all boundaries. Bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore the land mourns and all who dwell within it languish. Our sins lead to all kinds of social ills because God passively judges us by letting our sin take its course. There is nothing more horrible I can think of of God lifting his hand of restraint off a person. Off. Because they are utterly given over to self-destruction. And woe be unto you if you are in their pathway. God's judgment is proactive. Hell is not just our own making. There's a sense in which we create hell on earth through our sin. But the bigger truth is that God makes hell, capital H, hell is God's eternal judgment on our sin. I, even I, will tear and go away. Tim Keller, in an article he wrote uh, on why he preaches on hell, um, I found fascinating and he argues that he believes one of the reasons 
the Bible tells us about hell is so it can act like smelling salts about the true danger and seriousness of even what we may consider minor sins. However, I found that only stressing the symbols of hell, fire, and darkness, and preaching, rather than going to what the symbols refer to, eternal and spiritual decomposition, actually prevents modern people finding hell as a deterrent. And then he begins always with this. He quotes C.S. Lewis. Lewis says, Hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others, but you're still distinct for it. You may even criticize it in yourself, and you wish you could stop it, but there may come a day when you can no longer. Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood or even enjoy it, but just the grumble itself, going on forever like a machine. It is not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us, there is something growing which will be hell unless it's nipped in the bud. We run from the presence of God. Therefore, God actively gives us over to our desires. Hell, therefore, is a prison in which the doors are first locked from the inside by us and therefore are locked from the outside by God. Every indication is that these doors continue to stay forever barred from the inside, though every knee uh, and tongue in hell knows that Jesus is Lord. No one can seek or want that lordship without the Holy Spirit. And so the doctrine of hell sobers us up. Jonathan Edwards put it this way. This is ordinarily when he speaks of God bringing judgment upon his people. Edwards preached on verse 15 in this text where God says, um, a little ahead of myself here, when God tears you apart, no one can bind you up. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his sores, then Ephraim turned to Assyria and sent to the great king for help. But he is not able to cure you, not able to heal your sores. And so the end result of a life in which God withdraws from a person is that corruption takes over. And it begins to be festering, putrid pus upon the soul. Self-destruction becomes a reality. Verse 15, however, suggests that there is some hope. There is some hope. I will return again to my place, like a lion returning to his lair, until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face, and in their distress earnestly seek me. God is ready to return to his people. His withdrawal can be reversed. He will return to his people if they return to him in repentance and rest. But he abandons them so that they will seek him. In a sermon on this verse, Jonathan Edwards, the great American preacher and theologian, said, This is God's ordinary way before great and signal expressions of his mercy and favor. He very commonly so orders it in his providence and so influences people by his spirit that they are brought to see their miserable condition as they are in themselves and to despair of help from themselves or make an arm of flesh before he appears for them and also makes them sensible of their sin and their unworthiness of God's help. 
Edwards goes on to urge his hearers not to ignore or suppress any feelings of the conviction of sin in their life. This may be God at work in them, leading them ultimately to a place of salvation. Instead, they should see such conviction as God's prompting to run to Christ and find mercy. The tragedy for the Israelites was that most of them did not pay any attention to this declaration of war. You know why? The reason they didn't pay any attention is because everything was going so well. Everything was, the economy was great. Material resources were growing and expanding. No nations were threatening them. I think it was Thomas Carlyle who said, for every 100 people who can withstand adversity, there's only one people who can handle prosperity. And as a result of that, these people were feeling secure and God is sending them a battle, I mean a, a, a battle cry, a, an alarm to wake up, to wake up, to wake up. Judgment is coming, judgment is coming. And most of them didn't heed it. And it's a tragedy repeated every time somebody hears the warning of judgment and ignores it. And so what about you today? The text seems to tell us that God has withdrawn from his people. And he's waiting for repentance. Now we know that the only one who can work repentance in us is God by His Spirit. But perhaps God today is saying to you, I'm not the center of your life. I mean, let's be honest here. Let's be honest. Let's talk about this. Christ is the bridegroom. We're the bride. Are we really acting like a faithful bride to Christ? Is He really the one who our hearts turn to completely? Do we rest completely in Him? Do we trust completely in Him? Is that a description of who we really are? Is there a uniqueness about us? Is there something different about us because we are connected to Him? Is there fruit in our life? Is the fruit of the Spirit abounding in our life? These are questions we must ask ourselves. Martin Luther said, as he posted the 95 theses on the door of the church at Wittenberg, the first theses, or thesis of the 95 theses, that's hard to say if you say it a lot. Get tang-tongled there for a second. Um, the first one is, our Lord and Master Jesus Christ has willed that the entire life of a Christian is to be a life of repentance. You should be repenting daily. I should be repenting daily. Why? Because just like Ephraim, I have a heart that's easily seduced by idolatry. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. This is not a kind of word we often like to preach or like to hear, but it is nonetheless the truth. It is your word. 
And we pray today that you would use this word to wake us up. Some of us are just way too comfortable in our slumber. Some of us are just in need of spiritual renewal in the worst kind of way. It has been so long since we have sensed your presence. It has been so long since we have feasted upon your word. It has been so long since we have longed to be in community with other believers. It has been so long since we have taken great joy to come to the Lord's Supper and feast upon Christ. Lord, we pray you would work in us a spirit of repentance. And Lord, as we continue to worship you, may we give as those who have been bought by a price the precious blood of Jesus, not silver and gold, but the precious blood of Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen.